In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I have a brief conversation on some of the updates on on the NBA's potential return to play, and then dive into the five best and worst draft picks of the last 20 years. How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships, to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform, or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. I'm hanging in there. The slow drip feed of news from the, the NBA office is all we have these days. Yeah, I think I think it was recently reported that they were expecting a some kind of a decision within the next two to four weeks Yes, of what to do with the 2019-20 season, which that will be great. Living in this sort of state of limbo is tough. Um, and, and by that, I'm talking about the NBA side of things, not the real life implications of what's going on. Obviously, it, it's tough to really you can't put a date on really anything that's going on in the world right now. So I think that two to four weeks kind of taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. But it would be great if maybe some of these ideas and you know strategies of, of maybe how you could come back from this uh, and finish off the season would start to be fleshed out, reported a little bit, so we had a a little something to go on. It will be, I mean, I guess we'll start off right there. Uh, there have been a couple of, of reports that come out. First is that by Monday, the NBA expects that 22 out of 30 teams will have practice f- facilities open. Again, those will be voluntary workouts with, without head coaches, just basically supporting personnel to essentially retrieve balls. And, and I think it's a maximum of like four players, one per hoop that can be, there's all kinds of rules. Yeah. And, and the personnel have masks and gloves yeah. on, which has to be, I mean, I think there's a little bit of humor in that, right? When you're, you're just shooting a basketball and you're being fed by these assistant coaches of which the Sixers have a million. Uh, I don't think they've, they've opened up yet, but yeah. the, um, and I, you, they will, you would expect they will be one of the last teams to open up for sure. Yeah. Just, with the the location and yep. this is this is done on a state by state basis, but uh, you know theoretically when it happens and what is happening in these other locations, the idea of an assistant coach with a mask and and gloves feeding you shots just kind of shows where we are. But you know just from reading the reports around the league, it seems like there's been pretty good attendance at a lot of these places that have opened up, which I think goes to show that these players are pretty similar to the rest of us. Like they want to be safe. They don't want to take, you know, massive risks with their health, but they also want to get back to normal too. Yeah. Yeah. And then what they, uh, there's another owner call with Adam Silver where the quote was left the virtual meeting feeling increasingly positive about the league's momentum toward a resumption of play this season. Uh, let's see. The, the bubble will not be like a strict medical bubble, apparently, from what he was saying. He was saying people can leave and then they'll be retested. I think 
the the logistics of that'll be fairly interesting. I I think yep. that's probably more realistic than forcing people to stay on the same I think he called it a campus environment, which yep. I mean that that sounds good, right? Like I think everybody loves the idea of a college campus, right? We'll see if that's the case. He did uh, again Vegas and Disney World being the two most likely the two that are being discussed the most. Disney World. I, yep. And I think the one, well, I think they, 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 there might end up being like two, I think is, is some of the implication there, or at least one of the hypotheses thrown up there. I'll take that, it. They'll, they'll put the Eastern Conference at Disney World. So. Yeah. And then I think the other, the other sort of line that drew a lot of ire from people was getting people comfortable with the idea that a positive test for coronavirus would not shutter play. And... It's important. I mean, really what it means, first of all, I think at some sense that, that that's true. Like if one test is going to shut everything down, then why are we even bothering trying? But really what that means is that it's not like, hey, get accustomed to the fact that you might get sick. It's, hey, we're going to have really strict plans and really detailed plans on what will happen in the event that this a positive test does come back. And I think one of the, the lines in there was also that the legal office wasn't optimistic about rapid response testing becoming widely available within the next month, which that seems like a very important part of this equation. Yeah. That is still somewhat outside of the league's hands. Yeah. And I think there's been reporting, I think Woj was the the person who put this out here first, but that the, the league thinks that they're going to need 15,000 tests to, you know, credibly put on a playoffs. Right. Yeah. The, the rapid response is important because I think I mean, the, the best way to do it would be if you tested people, I don't know, every day, every yeah. couple of days. Like that that seems like the only way you're going to be able to do it. And, you know, from the league standpoint, they do not want the uh, the public relations hit that came from their teams being able to acquire tests, you know, when, when this first started with Rudy Gobert and, and everybody in the Utah Jazz traveling party getting them and, you know, those being like – I don't know, like 1% of all the tests in the country. Yeah. No, at that time, I think you got exactly right. I think it was like 1% of all the tests. Yeah. And it's obviously moved up a lot, but it's not to the point where everybody in the country can get a test if they want it. I think, you know, what what is like Nate Silver tweets these out a lot. Um, you know, it's like it's up to 300, 400,000 tests a day, basically, which you know, obviously is a major improvement. I think the NBA would like to see that move up. I think that, so that's part of it. And then the other thing is with these players and these coaches, they have to be willing to live with a degree of risk because it's like you said, like, it's not like you're telling them, Hey, plan on getting sick, but you need to plan for the worst case scenario. And even if you can ensure a lot of people can stay healthy with consistent testing and a closed environment, I, I think the odds are somebody would get sick if, if they were able to put on a playoffs over a couple months. Somebody, it would happen to somebody. And yeah, they have to weigh the the contingency on what happens when that happens. Yeah. And again, I, I don't think that like, I, I don't want that to come off like callous. I think what it no. means is that, you know, they, everybody goes in a knowing the risks, b knowing what the plan is if that happens. And how they're going to test it and prepare for it and then execute it when, when, when something like, like I think it, it just comes from a comfort level of we have everything planned out. 
and here's what you need to know as players before you can kind of like make this decision on what what we do going forward um yeah it's a th- these are all tough tough decisions tough plans to formulate it will be at we'll see i mean it, it's it's it does seem like a lot of people players certainly teams and the league want to find a way to make this work but one thing we know for almost almost 100 percent certainty don't expect to be sitting in stands for quite a while exactly yeah but i do i don't know i feel like there's been a lot of pushback on these professional sports leagues recently it's like well, they just want their money. Of course they want their money. What are, sure. you, what are you talking about? I yep. mean, I mean, these guys, they, they don't want to lose all, all of their salary for the end of the year here. Like that, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to want to come back and play. It's just, are you willing to live with a certain amount of risk? And I, I don't think, I think what we've seen over the past month, it's not going to get to a point where, you know, we have this magical treatment or vaccine, certainly not during the time frame we're discussing on putting a playoffs together. I, I don't think it's just that they're motivated by money. I think they no, want to go back to basketball too. Yeah, yeah. They, they want to play basketball. And frankly, them playing basketball and, and being able to put on a playoffs would be good for everybody. It would give people something to watch at night when they're stuck in their homes. So... I, I don't want to pretend like it's it's just that the players are, are motivated by money, although that is certainly part of it. Some players, owners, league, like I, there's that financial aspect to to everyone, and not just like rich people too. Like there are people who work for the team that aren't rich and who whose jobs will come into jeopardy here if uh, you know you can't have a league go on that brings in no revenue. It's just they're going to try to find a way. I do I do feel like in a few years. Hopefully, when we're we're all through this and, and we're back to normal, Adam Silver is going to be judged on how he handled this, perhaps yes. more than anything else in his tenure, and maybe anything moving forward. Because, man, I <laughs> I find it hard to believe he's going to deal with the situation like this again in his no. career anytime soon. God, I hope not. Yeah. All right. So one of the other articles um, that I want to bring up, Bobby Marks again of ESPN basically reported that he has talked to league executives that are looking at a potential drop in cap for tw- for next season, 2020-2021. From 115, which is the current estimate before Corona, to $95 million, which would then drop the luxury tax, if it holds that way, from $139 million to $115 million. Now, to sort of put in perspective what that would do for the Sixers. Now, I estimated the Sixers next year's salary at $152 million. Under the $115 million tax cutoff, that meant they would have spent just under $24 million in luxury tax. Under a, a luxury tax line of $115 million, that luxury tax bill Josh Harris would spend jumps from just under $24 million to $119 million. So we're talking about a massive, like if, if you were worried about Josh Harris spending the luxury tax before, <laughs> You're fucking terrified of what that means going forward. Will they sell off draft picks? Will they stop using their mid-level? Will they look to shed salary? Will they, when it comes up, not try to re-sign people like Josh Richardson? There's a whole lot of ramifications to this. And just because the Sixers were over the tax and over the, the cap does not mean there's no impact in what would happen. Now, there have been, I don't think anybody wants to just go status quo. Like say, okay, Here's a drop in the lug- in the cap and the luxury tax. Yeah, 
deal with it. Like that seems very unlikely when you're losing a quarter of your basketball related income. And to be clear, the Sixers are on the higher end of what the luxury tax are. I think, you know, Golden State Golden is the State, highest yeah. highest end. I don't know what the hell they would do. But the entire league would basically be in the luxury tax if that yeah, happened. I think I think he said three teams would have cap space in, yeah. in this scenario, which not only does the league not want, but the players association really doesn't want because that means nobody's getting paid. So they will find a way, whether that is, you know, there have been all kinds of proposals, freezing freezing the luxury tax line, sort of freezing the, the salary cap over the next few years at what it currently is this year. They're eliminating the progressive tax brackets. There's all kinds of ways they could sort of fix this oddity. Um, and there's, I mean, there's the ways that this can play out are fascinating. Like one of the things I brought up in a recent article on The Athletic is players taking one-year deals again or short-term deals so they can line up to when a, a jump in a cap might happen. Um, I mean, there's teams that if, if, if revenue drops and the salary cap doesn't, there's teams that could struggle hitting the freaking salary cap floor. Like there's all kinds of, of, of this is, is going to be fascinating. And so much of what, you know, I recently did a mailbag, which was stupid by the way, um, where I said, Hey, anybody, if you have a Sixers question, email me. And I'll give like a try to give a thoughtful response. I ended up getting over 200 emails. And I pretty much spent the last week doing nothing but responding to emails. But a lot of them came like, hey, what would you do with Al Horford? It's like, I don't fucking know. Like when you're looking at it as something this uncertain with the salary, the, the salary cap, this is really uncharted territories. And I think there's a lot of concerns here. Even if like, you know, what, what is the cap this year? Like a hundred and... Nine million, I want to say something so, like that. Yeah, it's one or nine. I think. So even if it doesn't go up to the six million people are expecting, like that Al Horford contract, all of a sudden becomes even worse across the league. It's going to be harder to trade that contract. It's going to be harder to trade Tobias Harris if you want to. There's a lot of like this is going to change team building quite a bit, and it'll be interesting to see play out. It's just when when Bobby Marks brought up that ninety five million dollar cap with the hundred fifteen million dollar tax, it was like, whoa, that's going to get like that's going to get expensive real quickly. That's a massive drop. It's a massive drop. It's insane. And yeah, I think the, the whole league will be dealing with it. Do you think that there's any chance they might reintroduce the amnesty provision? Yeah, I think I think there has to be a, 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 a like there might be other ways to basically accomplish something similar in terms of artificially keeping the tax and the cap high. I saw I saw Bobby bring up one possibility where like you continue playing paying players their normal salary. But they only count against like if, if let's say the cap drops by twenty percent, then their cap hit essentially drops by twenty percent. I like that idea. And you resolve it that way. Um That's interesting. But yeah, like there's I think there's certainly a chance that the amnesty makes a return. Which can you imagine the the inception level shit that would go on if Elton Brand <laughs> who the Sixers used their amnesty on back in twenty eleven, then had to use an amnesty on one of the players that he signed? That would just be delicious. The power is now in his hands. The wow. story writes itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a chance. Who did they amnesty him for? Did they do that for like the Swaggy P team? I think. Yeah. Wasn't wasn't that? Yeah, was I that think the so. Darrell Wright off season. Yes. With uh, not uh, the best use of Kwame the Brown. Oh, what a year! Uh, yeah. No, that would be pretty funny. Hopefully, uh, they have their shit figured out by then. All right, so I guess not a whole lot to talk about, and we can't just do a 16-minute podcast. So recently, um, semi-recently, a couple weeks ago, 
you wrote basically the top 10, the best and worst draft picks of the modern era. Very so scientific thought, grading scale on those yeah. two. Well, my, my favorite one was you said since 2000, and then you went back into like 97, 98 to fill out your roster. There really weren't that many bad <laughs> picks, unfortunately. Like I, <laughs> yeah, the, the first for the, for the good picks, I cut it off at 2000 because there were a lot of good picks in that time. For the bad ones, there, there really weren't that many awful, terrible hindsight you should have taken this guy picks so yeah we had to had to move it back to the to the uh alan iverson yeah so we'll just go over five of each and, and why we think it deserves to be up here I'll, I'll i'll sort of give my the way i looked at it because a lot of people will debate what makes a draft pick a, dra- a bad draft pick so i guess first of all i will say that i am taking in the whole trade into account Unless, like, not if it's, like, a part of a trade. Basically, if the trade was only for, dra- like, draft pick for draft pick, then I'm going to, like, I mean, the, the one I'm thinking of here is Markel Fultz. Like, for me, when you trade two draft picks for one, and if you do it all in one sort of transaction, then you're saying, I, like, that's part of your eval. I think Markel Fultz, as a prospect, is worth worth enough to give up two draft picks. So I'm including that. I gotcha. But now if it was like, let's say you traded, make, made a trade at trade deadline 2016 and that 2019 pick ended up becoming a good player. Like that that's to me isn't, that's yeah, not, yeah. That's, that's separate. I will say I tried to keep it somewhat like, okay, the one I went back to, like there's a little bit of expected value that went into it. Like for example, Sammy D, Sammy Dallenberry back in 2001, not a bad draft pick for 26 in a vacuum until you look at Tony Parker and Gilbert Arenas going within the next five picks. I didn't hold that against them too much because I still think they got pretty good value for 26 by itself. Like, the fact that they didn't find Gilbert Arenas, well, 30 30 teams passed on him. So I give them, like, that factors into it, but it's not as bad if, like, someone is picked third and someone much better goes fourth, which, again, I'm using those numbers because we'll get to that. The other thing I would say is, like, and a lot of people say like, well, Evan Turner, everyone had Evan Turner second, so it's not a bad draft pick. I think that gets used a little bit too liberally. Like these guys are being paid not to make a cumulative big board from public rankings and make decisions based off of that. They're paid in part to figure out which guys are overvalued and which guys are undervalued. That was a big part of, of uh, Sam Hinkie and his staff's draft strategy was trying to find who's being overvalued, who's being undervalued, and, pl- and play the market in that way. So while Evan Turner being ranked second might be understandable why they selected him, it's still a bad draft pick because of who they could have had outside of that. And again, I try to keep that within reason. Like I said, Rudy Gobert going 27th, like I can't be like, oh, you should have taken him at you know no. six or whatever. Like that, that's a little tougher. But within reason, like just because someone was consensus doesn't doesn't give you a free pass from it. Basically, like the the opposite of that is with Embiid, the only player in the entire draft who you can even argue was Jokic, who was picked in the 40s, I believe. So, right, that's not like, oh man, you missed on Jokic. It's like, no, no, everybody did. Right. So that that's sort of like how I viewed it. Um, And again, I think I think like, and the other thing is what was knowable at the time. And the one you're going to come back to on this is, is Markel Fultz. I factored that in a little bit. Like if you couldn't know what was going to happen, then it wasn't a, like 
It's funny that you have to make up criteria for faults because it was such a crazy so thing. Know. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of a give and take there. Anyway, with all that out of the way, do you want to start off with good picks or bad picks first? Let's start out with bad picks first. All right. These are probably the most interesting. So I went, and I'm pretty sure this is what you had too. I went Julie Okafor with the worst pick of the last 20 years. Yeah. And there was competition, don't get me wrong, but it, it's close. Because really, after you got by Porzingis, there wasn't a whole lot of talent in that draft. But Porzingis is the one who was most directly compared to. And what really gets me is that the fit just wasn't there. There was no way. And I'll be honest, I don't think I don't think the Sixers were planning on keeping both Okafor and Embiid long-term. Like, I don't think they viewed it as these two can fit together. But because there was no chance those two could fit together... And because Porzingis would have been such an interesting fit with Embiid, yeah, that it is. I mean, it was it was, it was a massive miss. It was a massive, massive, massive miss. And I said this on a recent podcast. You know, I think a lot of people want to know why. And yes, I think there was some pressure to get a pick that would make an impact right away. I don't think they were completely barred from picking Porzingis if they felt like he was going to make the impact that he eventually did. I think they could have picked him. They didn't. I, again, very few people did. But their job is to make that evaluation. Their job is to, you know, predict what's going to happen. And I mean, that that's a huge miss. It's a huge, huge miss. And it, it just gets like, really, it's a fit. Like, and again, I think they were going to eventually have to trade Okafort. I think they probably thought they could do with him what they did with Michael Carter-Williams. But the fact that there was no way that those three pieces, and you can you can lump... um. You can lump Nerlens Noel in there too. That there was no way that all three of them were going to fit. Yeah. Part of it is that it was so shocking for someone like Hinky too, who you thought was obsessed with upside. And here's this guy in Porzingis. And I go back all the time and I read what other people wrote about him, what I wrote about him. This guy was, there's uncertainty, sure. But there's also a lot of like, that was, he was a tantalizing prospect. Yeah, he was running he could, off screens in the ACB, like yeah, he was shooting threes. Flying off screens on the move, not catch and shoot on the move screens. The way he could block shots, that kind of two way dynamic was just, it was so unique. And it's not like, you know, a lot of big men, and I'm I'm thinking about Al Orford here. Like they take a year and a half to get their shot off. No, he got his shot off in a a blink of an eye, and it was a high release and yeah. on movement. And it was just there was a lot. I was extremely extremely excited about with Kristaps Porzingis as a, a prospect. And then you talked about people who knew him and his competitive drive. There was hope that he would continue to improve down the line. I was, it's, it, it's a tough one. It, it could have really like, when you look back at dynasty and I think this is why I had this one first over the one we'll talk about next. When I look back at dynasty, this is the one that I think could have given them the chance of a dynasty more than Markel Fultz. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, not to say you're going to talk about the factors that uh, went into the trade with Boston and whether Jason Tatum was ever actually available. Yes, Yes, that is fair. Uh, Just specifically with Okafor, yeah, I agree with you. I think the the problem with the Okafor pick, which I also had as the worst pick, not only was it a missed player evaluation, but it's like you said, the fit. You you would watch Okafor play and you thought – Man, even if this guy was as talented and fit in the NBA at the level that they thought he might, the fit was not going to work with the players that they had. And I guess at that time they could have made the excuse like, 
We don't know what we're going to get from Joel Embiid moving forward. That was his second straight year he had sat out. But yeah, it just, it, it was a terrible fit. I mean, I, I think the lesson there is pretty simple. If you're drafting a center in the top five, seven of the NBA draft for the most part, he's got to have two-way potential. Well, and, and that's like, like, like his weakness cannot be eh, his defense. He he reads it kind of poorly. Right. <laughs> right. That position defense is the most important at that position than any other. So, you know, it, it's great that Embiid is kind of this two way hub and, and Jokic can be a two way hub with his passing Embiid with just his, his force and his skill and his ability to get to the free throw line and score efficiently. That's really rare. So you need a combination of the two. And uh, and Okafor, even when he was being evaluated as a top prospect, I don't think you could realistically say that he had the two. Now, that, then it also turned out that his passing and his post-up play was a lot of like face-up drives that he wouldn't pass the ball to anybody as well. But but the defense, just, just looking at that right away, it just, eh, this is a bad pick. Yeah. And look, I think... It was real close. Like again, I think I think their plan was draft him, run up his stats, trade him, and I mean, Jerry Colangelo was brought in like two months into that season, and everything changed. And Okafor was on TMZ, and his value went down. So like, I think you looked at it, and a lot of those players who were drafted after him ended up not panning out. And if their evaluation was, look, we don't think Hizonia and Cully Stein and Moutier and Stanley Johnson are going to be worth much of anything in two years' time. Let's take the one kid that we think can put up some numbers and see if we can flip him for something down the road. Like, I understand that aspect of it, and I think there's some sense to it. Well, they did it with MCW. They did it with MCW. Maybe but unintentionally to start, but they, they saw how it worked. The calculus in there has to be that you don't miss on a star on the very next pick. Like, if Chris Saps Porzingis didn't exist, then that strategy and, and Elkafor's rookie season turned out differently and all that stuff. That strategy might have made sense, but you missed on a star. And that's a, you know, you have to be docked quite a bit for that. And like you said, there's like, there's just a, a there was a miss of where the league was trending towards with that pick, yep. which was frustrating for a front office who I think a lot of people thought, and in some ways they were, was forward looking. That was a real pick where like he just, he wasn't going to fit the modern NBA. And look, I missed it at the time too. I had him ranked third overall. I remember writing at the time that I was debating Okafor and Porzingis, and I I chickened out and shame on me. But like they had to they had to see where the league was going, and they they missed on that one, and it, and, and probably in a way that was more than any other person on this list. I've been looking mostly at guards in this upcoming class because the Sixers might have a pick now, and when I'm talking about guards, I'm talking about guys who. Are generally projected in the teens to the to the low twenties, you know, with reasonable, you know, slide potential to where the Sixers are picking. I'll just say, like at the top of the draft, that the idea that this James Wiseman could go really high, I'm not sure if I would do that. I, I, I just think it's not. It might be getting close to the level of like, if you take a running back that high, that better be a special player. Like that, it better be like a Joel Embiid type player where he has those crazy workouts in in Santa Monica and just shows those tantalizing skills. Which I guess you could almost argue argue Porzingis, although he wasn't a uh, a back to the basket guy as much qualified for that. But yeah, I just every, everything was was messed up there. Let's let's keep going. So Fultz number two. 
Yeah. And I mean, look, you, you sort of brought it up. Part of the reason this isn't number one for me is because I don't consider Jason Tatum an actual um, option. Like, I don't think Danny Ainge would have made that trade if he didn't get assurances that Tatum would be there at three. So if, if you would say trade up and take Jason Tatum, then yeah, you might, you might rank that over the Oka for miss, especially when you factor in the other, but I don't, I just don't think he was a realistic option. You look at sort of what was available there. Look, there are some good players. Like I would love to have Jonathan, Jonathan Isaac or De'Aaron Fox on this team. So there are some good players, but there wasn't really like that player outside of Tatum who would have taken this rebuild to a, a, a dynasty level. Yeah. I don't think. Um, De'Aaron Fox would have been pretty cool. Mitchell, but then you're starting to get back in that range where like, but who would have really taken Donovan Mitchell third? Like that just wasn't really realistic. No. So. Yeah, I think De'Aaron Fox would have been really cool. I always think back to his workout. The morning of Fultz's workout where he drove up from Maryland and had the Chick-fil-A in his hands. That morning, De'Aaron Fox worked out for the Sixers and – Nobody cared, which was hilarious because I think for most of the lead up to the draft with the Sixers having the third pick, Fox was considered somebody who yeah. they could have drafted. And we debated whether his shot was going to work and his speed. And I, I think everybody knew who had studied him at all that he basically he hit the intangibles and the, the leadership and the personality part just out of the park. So of course he gets the the late workout the day after they agreed to the trade for uh yeah for Fultz and he works out and everybody's there like yeah nice to meet you man like I know you're not going to be drafted here but uh good for you and now he's you know he's he's not an all-star level player but he's got a shot and uh I'm not sure the fit with Ben Simmons would have been great there but it would it would have been cool to watch those guys play together and there is also part of this where the Markel situation was so unique where, like, I don't know, like, is that a scouting miss? I don't really know if that's really a scouting miss as much as it is, a, like, a background check miss. And that, I mean, that's part of the process, so that doesn't really change. I think it's all a background check miss, personally. Yeah, but that doesn't really change the impact of that miss, losing those two draft picks and basically tying up those three draft picks that were really blue-chip pro- trade prospects at that time. That's really, to me, where the loss is. More so, and like I said, I, I really like Isaac, really like Fox. There's a couple players that could have really helped. But a lot of that loss is losing those trade chips that could have been used to acquire, you know, a, a, a established player who maybe didn't have the baggage and uncertainty of Jimmy Butler or who you didn't have to overpay for Tobias. Like somebody who could have helped on a more long-term level. Like, so there was opportunity cost with that trade. And that's a big reason why it's still number two. But with uh, Porzingis, the line to acquiring a, a great player is just a little bit more clear. So that's why I gave it the edge. Yeah. And in comparison to Okafor, you could still see Fultz, see it in Orlando this year when he just gets to the basket with those yep. herky-jerky drives, even with people playing five feet off of him. He's still, it's just this massive kid. I mean, he's freaking huge and he's got that crazy wingspan, so... You could at least see, like, oh, if he was good, this would have been really exciting if he was the the version of the player that they thought they were drafting. And that's my reason for putting Okafor ahead or technically below him. All right. All right. Number three. So I think we agree on this one because the next one you had was um, Larry Hughes in 1998, which I'm not including in that my list because I'm not going 10 deep, so I only went back to 2000. Next up would be Evan Turner. 
And look, was it consensus number two? Yes, absolutely. But your job is to find out where the consensus is wrong and find out players who are actually building blocks. And this is another one, a little bit like Jaleel, where there's a changing NBA and these sort of styles of players were becoming a little bit out of favor, but also his skills just didn't translate as well as you would hope. And then you have, you know, Cousins at fifth, but also Gordon Hayward ninth, Paul yeah. George tenth, like yeah. players who just fit the modern game better. They, they fit didn't... better, but they were so much lower. I mean, I, I don't know. I Not so much lower, but. I mean, I look, I get that he was coming from a school where it was, it was not, it was hard, tougher to pr- project. Yeah. But they it's made... not like, like these guys were still top 10 picks, you know? I, I, yeah. I don't know. They, they had different pedigrees for sure. I mean, Gordon Hayward I mean, missed, they, they the, missed the buzzer beater to uh, win the national championship against Duke. So he obviously had a lot of shine from that. Honestly, I mean, if you think about it, Gordon Hayward only going ninth with about the biggest March Madness bump you've yeah. ever seen, right? Because you hear all these stories about how GMs are like, my my owner stepped in and was like, I saw this guy in March Madness. I want to draft him. So, so him dropping... Even that far is is kind of interesting. And then Paul George was the complete opposite. He played for Fresno State, who was not even good, and they were irrelevant. Um, yeah, no, those are those are misses, but they were they were pretty far down the line. I'm curious, were you a favors guy back then? I was. So I, I think the way I, I covered that because I was actually I was at that combine that year, and I think my general take was I think Demarcus Cousins is the most the second most talented player in this draft behind John Wall but I didn't trust him in the locker room and I had um, favors ranked ahead of him. I think that concern of DeMarcus Cousins in the locker room being a leader has proven to be true, but you would clearly take Cousins over favors uh, for, for his career. Yeah, by, by a little bit. But if you have a team with a bunch of star level players already in there, like let's, let's say this, how about last year when everybody was angry that the Warriors signed Cousins for the mid-level. Do you think they would have rather had Cousins or Favors? I think they would have Probably rather had Favors. favors. Yeah. 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 And and that's – look, the Turner pick was – it was bad. But I, I look at Favors as kind of the more reasonable option there. Like he was considered the next best player. There was reporting, right, that Doug Collins actually favored Favors. Uh, yes. That was unintentional, me saying that. The uh, so when you look at the the career, you know you're basically getting what an average to slightly above average NBA center, yeah, which is a position where you know it's it's pretty easy to find adequate play. It's probably more easy. It's it's probably easier than the other positions, to be honest. So yeah, that that's where I kind of look at it and say, yeah, the, the Turner pick wasn't great, and and by the way. Evan Turner, who is hilarious, the uh, that might be a story we need to to work on the uh, the oral history of the, those Sixers teams because while they weren't that exciting on the floor, so many characters on those teams. I'll never forget. It was at one of the media days when they had a mic set up and Evan didn't realize that they were broadcasting live. Oh yeah, and he dropped it and he was like, "What's up, mother effers?" And just seeing Max Rappaport, uh, his who was working with the team at the time, his face just like. Oh my God, I can't believe you just did that. Um, so yeah, Evan Turner uh, broadcast an MF bomb at um, Media Day one year, which was fun, which was fun. Evan, um, Lou, Hawes, they they always made fun of Hawes. Iguodala, when he was there, he had his 
wry sense of humor. Yeah, no, that that was a funny team. So I, I'm looking at it though. Evan Turner, who you know, I think is generally considered a disappointment. He could not have timed his best basketball of his career any better because yeah. of course it happens right before the cap spike. And even with the cap spike, when all of these crazy contracts were being handed out, he gets just a ludicrous four year, $70 million contract. And like, look, Evan Turner was an NBA player. He was an NBA rotation player, but to get that type of money for, you know, essentially like a big backup point guard who doesn't give you any sort of floor spacing, and he gives you a little bit of defensive versatility was was pretty crazy. But yep. Evan timed it perfectly. Yep. I mean, the problem with him was there was like a super role player center who went right after him. A guy with star potential who went, you know, three picks after him. And then two sort of, I won't call them diamonds in a rough because they were still, like they were considered lottery prospects who grew to become much better than him later down. So there's, no matter which way you want to look at it, there was other directions that would have been more beneficial. So yeah, he is third. I hope Fourth. he has a media career after it's over because he is <laughs> he is like legitimately really funny. He is. He is. So the fourth, there's a couple of interesting ones. I ended up going. Who did I, who did you go with fourth? I went with Arnett Moultrie fourth. Okay. And, I was and debating look. between Arnett Moultrie and Mo Spates. And the thing with Spates is so Spates was 16th in 2008 or 2008. There wasn't a whole lot after him except the one guy who went immediately after him in Roy Hibbert. So just because they went like back to back, I think I gave it more weight, but there truthfully weren't a whole lot of options after that. Yeah. I had Spates a little bit lower just because, you know, I I agree. Obviously Hibbert would have been good, but he also had a very short shelf life as a super impactful NBA player. It was hilarious that Roy Hibbert was like the LeBron stopper for, Two years, I'd say. Yeah. And then he was out of the league about two years after that. Now he, he works for the Sixers, working out Joel Embiid. Yeah, no, I had – this is kind of where there's some subjectivity to it. Like, we're, we're talking about late first-round picks. We're talking yeah. about much less impactful moves, as bad as they were and as bad as the process was on these moves. Like – doesn't even come close to the impact. I am totally cutting up that clip where you said as bad as the process was and then stopped. And I'm going to play it without context constantly. Sure. Send it to Howard Eskin. The process of, of these selections. Is yeah, what that's you're what I'm getting I, at. Yeah. That is what I meant. Um, but yeah, obviously, like it's it's not setting back your franchise multiple years. And I had two of these back to back. I had our friend Anzech Pesechnis. And then I had Moultrie. But Moultrie was so ridiculous because they make the trade for him and give the future first-round pick. Yeah. And then Doug Collins won't play him. They they sucked. It was the 2012-13 year. It was the year we were talking about earlier. After the Elton Brand amnesty, they had Swaggy P. They had Darrell Wright. They had Kwame Brown. And he wouldn't play Arnett Moultrie. And, and like rightfully so, but if you're gonna draft a guy late in the first round, if you if you really want him that badly, God, you better be willing to play him. And they just weren't. And of yeah, course, I mean, and so of course, Henke, uh real quick, and of course, Henke, uh gets that pick back in the Dario Saric, Alfred Payton trade a few years later. 
I think the reason this didn't, I think you're right. This was a, a worse series of moves than um, the Spades pick. Because I think the, it flew off my radar a little bit. First of all, because it's 27th overall. So you don't really typically expect that much value. But it's it's a trade. It's the fact that they gave up a future first round pick to get this guy. First of all, and I, I think another reason it came off my radar is because they ended up getting that pick back. Um, but it, it's still like they could have gotten a different asset back if they hadn't wasted this one away. And I don't give Doug too much blame for not playing him because I think like once you start watching Moultrie, it became obvious that he, he was, was terrible. Just, he, he was terrible and he was not a smart basketball player. He didn't care either. Yeah. It was so like, like if, if, if maybe Doug Collins like spent a month with him in training camp and leading up the season went, whoa, this was a mistake. Like you don't need to compound your mistake of drafting him by playing him. I give him a little bit of rope on that one. But it's like, how did how did this not come up in a pre-draft process? Like, how did you not like again, going back to your point, like your big men better be able to defend. He had no shot. He had no shot of figuring that out. Like giving up a future and if they would have just had the 27th pick and taken him, okay, that sucks, but it's the 27th pick. It's a it's a trade that makes this one especially bad. Yeah. And I think uh we were talking about this with your own a few weeks ago. It's it's in his book that when Sam Hickey takes over the following draft. Was it the following draft? Yeah, I guess it was the following draft because that was Doug's last year. Yeah. Yep. He bunkers down and doesn't let anybody else except Sachin Gupta into what he's he's thinking. But he he basically says to all the rest of these people, it's just because you know I I, I want to keep things tight to the vest. I respect how you drafted, and when you look at you know, the the three GMs. That's Billy King, Ed Stefanski, and then essentially Doug Collins, but Rod Thorne as well. That scouting staff did a good job for the yep. most part. And I, I think what ultimately did them in was a lack of vision. And you can say whether that's from the, the general managers themselves, I would more point to the ownership, Ed Snyder, for the most part. He just wasn't willing to tank ever, and he wasn't willing to do – what was necessary to land a star player. But in terms of just picking where they were supposed to, they did a pretty good job over, you know, about a 10, 12 year period. But this was, this was one of the worst ones. And it was kind of a sign to things to come that Doug Collins and, and just everybody was getting a little more desperate. And that was the Bynum year. Yeah. So. I mean, look, I think the best draft picks were actually, I think there was more of a selection with the best draft picks than there was with the worst ones. Yeah. It's just uh, so you're right. I think that the one thing, and that I think you were right that there was just a lack of vision in what they were doing. But given what they were working with and where they were drafting in the middle of the first round, a lot of these years, I think they came out pretty well. They did a really good job. They should be proud of it. This was a, a, a this was a big exception, though. Yeah, big exception. All right, what's fifth? Let's. I had MCW, and I yeah. doc. I doc. Look, I I give Hinky a little bit credit back because they inflated his numbers and realized they were inflated. Like the trade of MCW. I think was really good and really strong. And I think that sort of showcases what that front office did exceptionally well and what they were maybe middle of the pack with, or maybe even worse middle of the pack. And a lot of this, like there were some good players taken, like Steve, we're going to focus on Giannis a lot at 15th, obviously, but Steven Adams at 12th, even Kelly Olenek, he's a better NBA player than MCW, Gorgie Dang. Like there were, there were other options in that range. But when you bring up Giannis and look, 
Giannis was as edge case as you will ever see in the draft. Like the way he was playing in second division Greece, and he was just he was he he blew up real close to the end of that draft cycle, and nobody really knew what to make of him. He was not a polished basketball player. He was not a polished physical prospect. But this was a front office who a was star focused, and just looking at Giannis and the physical profile and the skills and the drive and the dedication, like there was star potential there. That should not drop the 15. And this was also a front office that prided itself in doing the extra legwork. Like I remember when they, when Moody, the Moody draft. Um, so the, the Okafor draft, I remember them making a big deal that Sam was one of the few who had gone over to China to watch Moody play um, before his season was cut short. And he, he prided himself on doing that homework. So the fact that there was a star sitting there and yeah, it was a edge case scenario that very few people could like it would it was a real tough projection to make. But you had a chance. You had a chance of of really finding something. And it wasn't like again, it wasn't like yeah, maybe not a lot of people saw Giannis play, but like the physical tools were so abundantly clear. Yeah. That I'm a little disappointed they they weren't the team to make that that gamble. I, I'd make the argument that Nerlens was almost as bad though. Because what was CJ? Oh, yeah, there's 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 CJ. He's you add him in there. I, again, you can't factor in the ultimate trade of of Carter Williams too much, but but I would factor that in a little bit that they were able to juice his value and get what at the time was another juicy pick. But uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, Giannis is a big deal, <laughs> and missing on him was certainly a missed opportunity. And if you combine those two picks together. That's that's two swings at him that you yeah. that you missed. Plus, I know like this is where I'll pat myself. Like, I, I had Giannis tenth, and that's really easy for me to say when I didn't have um, my job's not on the line with that ranking. And I can I can put that guy in second division Greece that I saw a grainy video of and say, oh my god, I really like him. Like that's easy for me to say. I get that it's tougher for a NBA GM, but like I'll just go back. Like the the potential, the freakish athleticism and size, it was it was there, and I think uh, I, I think. In hindsight, um, they should have been a little more star-focused at that time. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the best five. All right. So this is interesting because I think there's a lot of ways to go about this. Because honestly, the some of the, the makes are almost more abundant and more diversified. Best draft pick, I got to go with the guy who could be an MVP candidate, and that's Joel Embiid. And I think you had the same thing. And I think the reasoning is pretty clear. Like for what I just criticized them with Giannis for not being quite enough star focused and maybe trying to find, and again, I don't know if they really saw MCW as a, we think this guy can be a, an all-star caliber player, but I think they thought, well, 11th pick, we can get more value out of him than we invested in him. That's good. That's asset management. And with Embiid, I think they saw a star. And there's a lot of risk, and a lot of people got real focused on this risk. Um, I mean, I always go back to our Liberty Ballers days and the, the, how those big boards changed once the navicular bone injury came out. And people, again, people who were star-focused just dropped him fifth, sixth. Like, he dropped far on a lot of big boards. Well, the, the other part of this is that in, in hindsight, people look at that draft, and it, it's not a very impressive no. list of players. But at the time, it was considered... Yep. An awesome draft. 
Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of people like Jabari Parker. A lot of people like Dante Exum. And Exum obviously had injury issues. Julius Randle, who's put up numbers, but I don't think is a really good basketball player. But there's a lot of real interesting players in that range. Um, uh, what's his name? Big man, Indiana, blanking. Cody Zeller. Oh, Vonley. Yeah, Sorry. Vonley. Noah Vonley. A lot of people liked him, too. So there's a lot of... But, like, there was... The navicular bone was a scary injury. A scary, scary, scary injury. And so many pieces about big men and which ones haven't been able to come back from it. It was a very fair concern. Like, this was a scary injury. And also, by the way, he had a, a, a stress fracture in his back that ended his season. So there's a lot of concern. But I think the Sixers, in this case, saw through the concern. I think it's really easy to get focused on what could go wrong. And I always said that my biggest fear isn't what happens if he gets hurt again? It's what happens if he doesn't, and he's great, and you missed out on that. And he was the only one in that draft that I saw that really, really, really could be an MVP player. And the fact that they stuck with that, and I mean, this might have ended up costing them their 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 jobs with the team. Um, the, like the fact that you didn't get any production out of this for two years, I think was a big part in how the rebuild came to be viewed. But the fact that they stuck with that, kept their eye on what was important, and that was getting a star player. Um, I mean, I think that's a, the draft pick that has a has had the largest impact of the past 20 years. And uh, I think a lot of credit is deserved there. I would agree with that. And I, I think the, it's interesting to compare it to Simmons because I think Simmons was just such an obvious, easy pick. And, and I think, you know, you're not knocking Ben as a player. You know, he's a two-time all-star with the chance to be better if he can figure out how to do stuff outside of five feet. But, you know, it's it's like you always said. It was like signing your name on the SATs. I'm yep. not giving you a ton of credit for that pick. But Joel, yeah, just the, the mystery and the risk and then the, the ultimate upside that you got, that's number one. The, the the rest of this list for me are is basically, you know, besides those two, is good work done by that that late scouting staff five. in yep. the 2000s, whether it's kind of in the, the late lottery or the second round or wherever they they were able to find good value time and again, and what did that get them? That got them first round fodder, and you know generally getting your ass kicked come April. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of players who are still playing in the NBA today, and yeah. I think that uh, that goes to show that they got a lot of stuff right. And look, we ended up we ran it way too long about bad players, so we're going to spend a lot less time on the good players, which is a shame because honestly, this probably should be a pretty positive podcast. But Andre Iguodala. Number nine overall back in 2004. After Rafael Araujo, or Arujo, I don't yeah. even know how to say his name. Well, what do you play? Like maybe two years in the league? Awful. Awful with the Raptors. Lou Williams, 45th overall. Um, Thaddeus Young, 12th overall. And I think if you look at it, that, that might have been, I don't think there was anyone better after Thad drafted in that class. No. Drew Holiday, 17th. 17th. Yeah, Drew Holiday, 17th. Uh, Nikola Vucevic, 16th overall. And again, when you start getting into who Doug Collins actually played and valued once he was on the team, yeah, it changes ca- the equation a little bit. They didn't capitalize on that. No, one, they didn't. But, but the the the, the pick leading is good. up to the draft, that was an excellent pick, 16th overall. Um, and honestly, one I didn't truly believe in because I thought with the changing NBA, he would be phased out. But he's improved so much over the years that you give him a lot of credit for that. Um, so those are kind of the names that I came up with. Kyle Korver, 51st. Yeah. That's yeah. I forgot exactly what year he was drafted, but yeah. That's one of the new copy machines. Sixers paid for it, and they got a guy <laughs> who, again, I mean, mo- most of his career was not with them, and 
you know, that's that's part of the evaluation that, that I had. Like you had to play with the Sixers for a long time to be considered, you know, the, the top, top picks. That's why I, I valued Iguodala more than most of these players. But that's an, an awesome pick. I mean, he's still in the league. You know, even when you look back at Corver's first couple of years with the Sixers, he was he was making like 200 threes in 2005. Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. And there, I mean, there's a whole bunch that we haven't even talked about now. Like when you start getting into Landry Shamit, Matisse Thibel deserves yeah. a lot of credit at 20th. Dario Scharch. And again, part of that is the trade. Like the trade ended up being making what was a solid selection into a really good one. But there's there's a lot of, it really does feel bad that we spent so much time on the worst picks. They're a little more They're fun more to interesting. Talk about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there have been a lot of, of pretty good, pretty good hits. The problem is a lot of pretty good hits, like you said, You'd rather have sort of in the mid first, late first round range, even second round range, whereas you'd rather get those ones at the top of the draft, right? Like yeah, you would, you would you'd rather have those... a couple home runs than a bunch of singles and doubles, even if the singles or doubles were, were really the best thing you could have done at that time. Yep. You would, you would trade all of those successes in there for, um, you know, to get maybe Paul George or something of that sort. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Uh, that is the nature of the draft. That's why you want to get, that's why take a multi-year tank job that left you with uh, Embiid and Simmons might have might have been the right way to go. But anything else you want to... I feel like we sort of yada yada the best picks, but anything else you want to throw in there? Yeah, I think it's it's harder to rank the best picks. You know, it's like, is Drew Holiday at 17 better than Thad Young at uh, at 12? I don't know. I mean, they're, they're both pretty good, right? And, and I do think something that, that you emphasize, but, you know, it was in my... One of the categories I had was the should have taken factor. Pretty much all of these guys who were really good picks, there wasn't anybody behind them where I thought, man, that guy had an obviously better career. Yeah. Like Drew Holiday, like Ty Lawson was really good for a couple of years, but I, you would rather have Drew's overall career. Yep. Not to mention Thad, Drew as a person. Thad, there was nobody who you wanted after him. Like Al Thornton, I was looking back at the time. That's who everybody wanted. <laughs> Proven score. A guy that's been out of the league for forever. So that's, you know, it's pretty impressive. And it goes to show that you need more things than just drafting, right? Because, you know, at the time, I think the, the Sixers didn't have any direction and people were like, well, well, they need to draft better. It's like, no, actually, they're, they're doing okay in yes. that in that regard. But you need more than that. Yep. No, I mean, that that's a perfect uh, summation of that, uh, that era of Sixers basketball. Did their jobs in drafting really well, but no direction on how to get from uh, okay to great. All right, I think that is a good place to cut it off. Did not expect this to be an hour-long podcast, but when you start ranting about bad draft picks, that happens sometimes. So thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, man.